Thanks, everybody. Welcome to Best Again. This is a crossover show that we're going to do with one of our actual three of our shows. I'm Amy Nichols, the co-host of Two Legs. Joining me today is Kim O'Toole, and Dr. Kenneth Womack from Mammoth, also co-host of, well, actually, the host of Everything Fat Four. And today we're going to kind of do a little bit of a dive into the 1980s solo Eagles. And is it really as bad as we think, or is it really that bad for all solo Eagles? How are you, Kim? Doing great. Just enjoying this first night of, uh, of the fest. Can't believe it's almost only your hours on it. It's going by so fast. Yeah. Ken, how are you? Doing quite well, Andy. Alrighty. Still fresh off your incredible turn on our record club for Odyssey and Oracle. Oh, that's right. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Ken does uh, Tuesday night record club with Mammoth. We did Odyssey and Oracle and Zombies, which was a great record, a deep dive. Um, we talk about the 80s, you know, there's so much attention paid to the 70s in music, the solo people, especially because John was alive. But the 80s, you know, there's a lot of activity, you know, posthumously from John, but a lot of activity and history's kind of not been, you know, too nice to it, we think. What do you think, Kate, overall? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, uh, with the exception of a few albums, we should say, we'll get into that in a second. But, uh, but definitely, I've, I've gotten a sense over time that, you know, the 80s in general, I think for, for some music has been kind of dismissed, and people tend to think, oh, that was kind of a low point uh, for uh, the solo career and, and their solo careers. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about, is, is, is that a fair assessment? I think so. Ken, what say you want 80s solo meals? Well, generally, the 1980s are interesting if we sort of fly up 40,000 feet in terms of history, right? Because uh, there are several inflection points. Obviously, the murder of John Lennon um, casts a long shadow. Um, certainly in, in Great Britain, I was just there on a Beatles tour. <coughs> and uh, it was interesting the effect that that had on heritage tourism in the United Kingdom actually increased dramatically. After many years, uh, many fallow years, uh, increased dramatically. Um, in terms of, of the music scene, um, you know, there's that highly competitive moment in the late 1970s and early 1980s when all of the dinosaurs, as we now call them, were really in, in deep conflict, right? Putting out new records, new music, still putting out compelling music. And this is that, that sort of world where the solo Beatles found themselves. A world that, frankly, they invented as the Beatles, right? They invented this place for singer-songwriters to share their work and imagine their artistic ambitions on this massive stage. And now, in a way, they're victims of it uh, in the 1980s, and certainly with a new music coming along, which, uh, you know, these are the MTV, et cetera. So it's, a, it's an interesting inflection point. Yeah, I think that's a good point that, you know, they found particularly, you know, George, Paul, they found themselves a kind of a crossroads. Where were they going to fit in to this new pop landscape? Pop landscape, videos, something McCartney took, you know, a great interest in with being all the map, really, the sort of more video agent. And the collaborations, right, with Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder, which kind of people poo-poo. But I'm sorry, they're good. They're good collaborations. I know you feel the same way. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, what people don't remember, some people don't remember, um, you know, who like to dismiss Ebony and Ivory, um, or even The Girl Was Mine, or, you know, those were, yeah, those were big hits. They were number one, uh, well, uh, Ebony and Ivory was number one for, what, eight weeks, nine weeks, something like that? Um, I mean, they were big, big hits in their day. Yeah, I think Paul was faced with a decision. Obviously, after John was gone, he's not going to go out and tour, so what's he going to do? He finds something, you know, let me get commercial, let me work with people who are pretty big and stay in that wheelhouse and get a lot of exposure, and he did. I think you can't fault him for wanting to do that and taking that route. I really, and it bothers me that people like to just crap on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, people have asked me, um, who were, uh, shall we say, a bit, a bit younger, uh, in, uh, you know, younger than Gen X. How was The Girl Was Mine such a big hit? 
I've asked you that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand it, but I, mean, I, I know that we're in the same room as Alan Cozen, and uh, um, this is a good thing. And, uh, and, and I bring this up because um, you know some of the questions that that we're asking about the 1980s. I'm sure he and Adrian will be covering, and that is um, the, the artistic choices that McCartney's making, and, and and part of them that I have issue with is is the way in which it comes out with a triumph, obviously with tug of war, and it's it is it is a triumph that has diminishing returns because you know there's a kind of regurgitation of music that's taking place with Pipes of Peace and then with Give My Regards, where he isn't creating necessarily new music, right? Now, one thing we learn in, in Alan's fine new book is that you know Paul always had a lot of material sort of in his critical main that would come out at different moments, you know, maybe say wings on it, but you know, it was a solo track, right? Um, and I I start I, I, I feel like in his case, since he's one of our four choices here uh, for this period, he's he's starting to accrue diminishing returns on this practice in the 1980s, um, which leads us to press, uh, press to play rather, and you know, and then eventually, you know, uh, which they bookend the decade in a nice way for Paul. And obviously, Paul is a piece to talk about, right? Because he was the most prolific in the 1980s. But if you look at Tug of War and any Flowers of the Dirt, to your point, there's a lot of little period there. There is, and he loses his way for a while, and especially when he's trying to, when he's working with what, uh, there's some moments with Phil Ramone. Yeah. Does he work with David Foster? He does in '84, sort of. Well, uh, David Foster produced, you know, um, We Got Married, which was on Five Was Better. Right. So there, it's just an interesting period. Now, I think we could argue that he's the most well-equipped for the 1980s with a movement toward uh, music, television, MTV, and VH1. He is photogenic. Right. Um, you know, he likes to hand it up in videos, so it's kind of a safe space for him, and he does. Better uh, than the others, you know, arguably with maybe with the exception of uh, Got My Mind Set on You and the Harrison Roman, which kind of happens in the 90s a little bit. Right, right. But um, Paul's well equipped for that, for that, for that shift that is happening. Janine, my wife, likes to joke about, you know, the, the difference in being a rock star in 1979 versus 1984, right? <laughs> uh, you know, in 1979, you could be Nick Gilder, had a hot child in the city, and look like hell. You know, really, and, and make it work, you know, because nobody's really seeing you. And of course, then we have Christopher Cross, right? Which is such a classic example. Um, who isn't photogenic and works really well for him for a while. So there, there are a lot of shifts taking place, again, in this world that they invented, right? I mean, they're making music videos. Uh, they're making them way ahead of their I time. Mean, he pulls in a contemporary producer like Hugh Padgett for Press to Play, and it's done. You know, he gets Phil Collins, you know, on track, you know, to work on And it's just done. It just does not work. You know, these are the current hip people. It was not translating to success for him at that time. Well, again, I, I think, you know, as I said, Paul was trying to find his way in this new, you know, landscape. Now, as I said, Tug War was the exception that, that he really, you know, had this, this incredible, well, of course, starting in the decade with McCartney too, right. um, which other than coming up, um, and, uh, you know, which was a major hit, but uh, the rest of that album was, um, you know, with the exception of maybe Waterfalls, was not, uh, what I'd say was commercial. No. <laughs> you know. Successful, but not. Not, yeah, not, you know, so then Tug of War, uh, you know, great success, and then Pipes of Peace. Now, you know, Kate, to interrupt though, in our conversation that we had with Chris Thomas, a lot of these elements are already in place for Paul, right? I mean, Chris was very revelatory when he was talking about the making of Back of the Egg and the way that Paul kept trying to submarine his own project, right? And there was the gamut he plays with David Bowie, 
right, at the, the Replica Studios, where he brings Bowie in, and Bowie's like, well, I don't like this stuff. I like the album anyway. I'm paraphrasing, but it was a fascinating discussion because it was that kind of second guessing that you see McCartney doing. Now, when you look at the 80s as a whole, it's a successful period for it, right? I mean, you know, like you said, like these superstar collaborations, um, you know, he's, he's still relevant in 89, and he goes on a massively successful world tour that essentially goes for four years if you, you know, through the right. world tour. So, right. in a lot of ways, he's still playing the form in the 80s. He's, it must have been, and again, we'll, we'll learn more in the forthcoming book, books uh, from Alan and Adrian, but um, he, in, in some ways, the more challenging subjects are the other three right. fields. You know, obviously, John Lennon is in a fractured space, be dead. Um, you know, but there was a real revival of Lennon material in the 80s. Sure. And a lot of this was done with the Lost Lennon tapes. Yes. And Love Avenue, Live in New York City, you know, the, and all culminating in the Imagine documentary film. So, a lot of really neat things. And Bill Hunting too, and we're yet in 84. So there's a lot of, you know, he's very, still prevalent and still very fresh in people's minds. And for a, for a very competitive period, I mean, nobody told me as legitimate as yes. yes. I remember that quite well. I mean, the finish got a lot of airplay, where you airplay, the video to it got a lot of airplay as well. Um, and so, and then, yeah, sometime in New York City when that came out, or not, uh, no, I'm sorry, why in New York City, sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, that got a lot of publicity. Yeah, sometime in New York City. Yeah, that's a lot of record. Yes, indeed. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that got a lot of uh, publicity at the time. And then, yes, the Lost and Lennon tapes. Big. Yeah. Westwood one, one, Westwood one, big one. By the way, they could make serious money. And I'm sure something is, must be in the works. Reviving that, or at least remastering and making those mixes available. Absolutely. Yeah. Instead of us all listening to them on YouTube and bootleg. Yeah, exactly. Fact. Right. 100%. Yeah. So, so this obviously John wasn't here, but it was still a really good decade for him to be obviously celebrated. It was still so new because it was gone, so had all this extra material. It just, so he was still very, very present right. in that decade. And, and before we leave him and his former writing partner, he is casting a shadow that Paul is now wrestling with or still jousting with. There's a, you know, pick the Pick your metaphor and Jared, he's doing it, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'll never forget, there was an interview in, in the uh, now defunct musician magazine, which I really miss, I, I love that magazine, and uh, it was after Press came out and, and um, didn't do well, and, uh, and I think it was uh, an interview to uh, promote all the best, the greatest sense compilation that came out, and it was, uh, and I think the headline of this interview was, it was called Paul Gets Angry. And, uh, and it was Paul really fighting back, you know, against, and it was like John Lennon's memory, in a way. And he really let loose in this interview. Um, Alan, I don't know if, you, if you've seen this one. Um, and it, uh, you know, he was really fighting against his memory because it was still kind of a time when John, you know, I mean, it wasn't that long after he passed, about seven years, and, you know, he was still kind of sainted, you know, kind of sainted, and it was... Oh, well, he used the word, sainted. Yes. Yeah, right. And so he was still, you know, he was sort of saying, you know, he wasn't the Beatles I was too, and, you know, that kind of period. There's another interview around the same time, now I know this is going to be Chris Salvin, who we got on our show, the Q interview, eight six really assertive, it's a case point, okay, to what, you know, basically being very frank, very honest about Lennon and, and Ono, to which you would never hear him talk like that this time, you know, today. But that period would go back way much more. But you may be making a good point. Around that time, too, he was, you know, five, six years on, he was starting to feel like, okay, he wasn't a saint. Let me tell you how it really was. Interesting. How about the other two deals? Well, of course, George, um, in you know, early in the, in the decade, was going through an interesting time because you know he had somewhere in England, um, that he, and yes, it, it spawned the hit um, all those years ago, you know, which did very well. 
But as we all know, uh, he had a very tough time with that album, to say the least. And it got worse. Yeah. When he got in trouble. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, in the summer in England, I mean, the record company didn't like it. He had to go back and record more material for it, um, and uh, gave the uh, he gave the record company the middle finger with the first track like from a clone, uh, you know, to show exactly what he, what he thought of the record company. Uh, and he had such a negative experience with that. He, he said, "Okay, I'll give you one more album, and then I'm done," which was going to drop which was rejected, right? Uh, well, no, somewhere in England was. Somewhere in the original version of something. Don Trapo wasn't rejected. No, don't believe so. No. It just was just released so. without any fanfare at all. Just, he uh, wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't do any publicity. And, um, now, interesting though, because when Don Trapo first came out, I mean, you know, it, it was just really trashed by press, didn't do well. But I think in recent years, it has undergone kind of a uh, you know critical reassessment. Um, well, yeah, you've got you've got the circles on there, the old Beatle leftover track that was under the White Obsession. But I think that's the way it goes. Is also on there. That being included in the concert where George brought that album into a lot of consciousness of people, I think too, which is one of the that. I would take us again, and as we did with Paul, I would go back to 1979, right? And a lot of what happens in the 80s for McCartney is set up by what he saw as the poor sales of Back to the Egg, we talked about vis-a-vis you know, Chris Thomas, etc. You know, George is coming off uh, the George Harrison album with Blow Away, which felt like he was, but he was, you know, he was commercial again. Um, and I, I don't know, John Lennon isn't murdered, but he doesn't have all those years ago. I don't know that somewhere in England has any, any, any success at all. The 80s was a really weird decade for George. You know, first from Laos, then, then he's really quiet. He gets a lot of films, handmade films, time bandits. There's a lot of work in film. And then, I don't know if his business dealings went south in the 90s or the 80s when he got picked off by his manager. That could have been doing the same off must have begun. <laughs> yeah. You know, you realize that is the question. Right. So, as this kind of, in the 80s, like, nothing virtually for George at all. And then, out of thin air, we get cloud nine. Yeah, well, what really was the turnaround for him was when George was invited to do that Carl Perkins special. Yeah. Uh, that made him fall in love with music again. Um, and, you know, when you watch that special, which, you know, it's just wonderful to see now, although it's kind of bittersweet because, you know, so many are gone, you know, that um, played in that special. But you can see it in his face, you know how much he loved playing, and playing was hero, for God's sake, you know, and, you know, you could just see the look on his face, how thrilled he was, and it was after that that we thought, okay, I think I'm ready to record again, and, of course, with his good friend Jeff Lynn, that led us to Cloud Nine. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really, and while all this is going on, still, still, too, the Beatles are still kind of fighting, there's lawsuits Still, so there's all that still going on in this period. Uh, but they're getting a boom in 1987 with the very carefully engineered release of the CDs. Which they, this, by the way, had been turned into it was an event cultural moment because they waited, of course, until most of the other dinosaurs had done their thing, and then they released it methodically. We all remember uh, the, the fanfare associated with that. So, you know, that, that was really the beginning of a the kind of event culture that takes us through through right today, quite frankly, in the way Apple operates. Yeah. Um, before we get to Ringo, let's touch upon a point which is also in the age, which is kind of a really kind of sad moment, which is their last fall whole thing induction ceremony in 1988, I want to say it was, um, with Paul's non-appearance. What do you guys feel? Do you should have went, or do you think it was right to stay away? I think it should. I mean, I, I understand that, you know, what was going on at the time, the legal issues. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think Paul and Yoko were in wonderful terms at the time. But, I mean, this was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think they could have put their differences aside for one night. And, you know, it, it was kind of a sad. It is. You know, it was a sad evening, I, I think. And, and I think that, yeah, I think just for one night, they could have, you know, they could have put their differences aside. I don't know. What do you think, Dan? 
Well, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's a vexed institution, right? I mean, it's uh, like all halls of fame. We question choices, uh, the acts who are selected, uh, the ones who are not. I mean, we can probably pull our audience right now. I'm wondering why Franklin is still doing thing. You know, and, and while I love, we talked about this the other day, I love the zombies, but it's like they get in and. <laughs> right, but. Yeah, so I. Certainly more. You know, now their timing was everything uh, in, in this, this century. Uh, I agree that it was an unfortunate moment and it felt like a tantrum, but, you know, again, uh, this is not the first time, right? Um, you know, I think about Paul staying in the bath when they were meeting with Brian Epstein. <laughs> you know, it's these are But then you kind of play the form. You've got these periods of warmth where you hear that George apparently invited Paul to come on when he was to be in the video for when he was fat. It was available back during his new seat. You know, so they did the pepper suit or the war suit walk by. So, you know, there's moments of iciness and tension, but, you know, ultimately, you know, we've got us to, as you pointed out, to get us to the anthology and all the, the, everything that we got in the 90s and after that. So, I mean, but George still ends the decade awesome with the, with the traveling wolves. I mean, talk about going on a high note. Yeah, one of the best super groups ever, uh, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, absolutely uh, classic. And, uh, you know, it was really interesting. I remember uh, when George made that comeback uh, with Cloud Nine, and not only, of course, were Dyer fans thrilled, but, you know, I was in high school uh, at the time when, when Cloud Nine came out. And uh, when Got My Mind Suddenly came out, and as you mentioned, that really clever video. Um, the two of them, yeah, that's right. I didn't, I didn't, see, the, I didn't see the pinball video for years. Yes. I, I mean, I, I There's always the one in the library with the that Yeah, that's right. the only thing. Yeah, so I didn't even know about that other video yeah, for years. But anyway, uh, it was so great to see uh, my friends, who, you know, many of my friends at the time were not video fans didn't even really know George, and they were just kind of like, who's this guy? You know, and I was telling them, I'd say, well, I told you, I told you they were good, I told you George was good. So it really introduced him to a whole new generation, you know. It was so wonderful, the whole, that whole period was such a wonderful late triumph for yes. him. Um, you know, it also it gives us the wonderful trivia question, who's the last deal with the number one song? Yeah. Uh, so far, it's still, it's still, still George. Yeah. It's, it's still George, but to ride them, as Ken said, to ride that wave of momentum, starting with Cloud Nine, continuing with the Wilberries project. Really, I remember that was really a big thing, like 89, 90s, everywhere. The first, especially the first album. The second one's okay. The first one was like fantastic. It was Halo Care, every, everything about that record, and the group and the spirit was that came from was about who, who George was. And, to be having such difficulties, especially in the beginning of the decade, and to go out, really. And then he arrived then to the early 90s with Satori, which we think we had to do financially. We toured Japan in 92. But George is really busy there from like late 80s into the early 90s. He's very, very active. So I, I, he may have, he certainly, we know, needed the money um, given challenges in his own life, particularly for a very expensive piece of property uh, that. He owned, still owns. Did you guys go there? Uh, no, <laughs> we not in the front part. Um, but uh, we, we didn't even stream by the gates or anything. But that probably would have been a good idea. Anyway, um, you know, we, we know we had some financial challenges, but you know, a lot of that was Clapton, um, who had his band together and said, "Wouldn't it be fun, George, if we did this?" And uh, you know, they didn't really enjoy it as much as they both thought. But obviously. George never tours again. No. Um. <laughs> but yeah, it was still that after Slaves Ringo for the 80s. So not a good decade for him. No. Not at all. No. You know, who wrote the one cool commercials? Come on. Yeah. And I'll say it again, the 70s ended yeah. that day for him. Yeah. You know, in terms of, of music, right? And, and losing contracts, etc. It's a rough period. Now one of the bright lights for him, though, is the founding of the All-Star Band. At the end of the decade, yeah, right? At the end of the decade, it's been a wonderful, 
one of the great bright lights of the solo Beatles is the all-star band. Yeah. Um, and obviously something that has brought him and us uh, a lot of joy. Yeah, yeah that, that was a But in terms of original music, you know, uh, two albums, and one wasn't even released in, in America. Yeah, oh, wait. Now, Stop and Small Roses, while you know, it didn't do well, there are a couple of you know, highlights there. There's uh, Rack My Brain. Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a fun uh, fun song, which of course George wrote. Yeah. Uh, Private Property <laughs> is also uh, a fun a kind of fun song, and that's uh, that's Paul uh, who wrote uh, wrote that for him. Uh, I also uh, kind of like the song Dead Giveaway uh, from that. That's uh, that's uh, not a bad song either. But um, I always have songs about retention. Oh yeah, that's our intention. Yeah. So, uh, so there are you know a few a few decent times. But yeah, Rack My Brain is my favorite. Yeah, but that's a, I think history is getting that that album is actually pretty solid. Yeah, I mean, that's that's got. I'm not saying it's my all my all time favorite, no. but it's it's gotten a little more respect you know, in, in recent years. Uh, King Man, right? And then King Man, or you have Barbara Rock. So, you know, not a great film, but for Yeah, yeah I would say it's not a great film. Personally, I think that's a, that's, a safe, that's a safe thing to say. You know, so there, there's the, obviously, the, the commercial and, and critical spheres, right? Mm -hmm. Rico's having trouble yeah. in both areas. And you, you, you can significantly know he's having difficulty. I think, honestly, of all three Beatles, John's passing affected him the hardest. And I think that's why he struggled through that decade. Well, the whole decade and the story of the Beatles is affected by that. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. how could it not? We can imagine in many different ways that the 1980s progress. I mean, Wings was probably going to tour America with a with a new and Orange Group told us that on a show. He's like, we had a number one in America, we were going to come here and tour. And uh, we all know what happened. Right. Yeah. But, you know. But in a way, you know, it is amazing how Ringo came back. And, yeah. And, you know, this, I mean, it could have gone a very different way, and, and uh, so, you know, good on Ringo that, that he stuck it through and, and you know, recovered, and, and boy, did he recover with, with the, as you said, the All-Star band that's so always strong. And to get through such a tumultuous decade where there was so much up and down, critically, and, so, and his own personal problems. Yes, you know, I mean, personal, big time. You know, he beat a lot of demons by the end of that decade. And to, for them to all come out of that decade and having some success all over the world tour, George with the Wilburys, Rico with the All Stars, then the then the end of the anthology, that's 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 how it's supposed to be. It's as good as it could have been, given the decade that they all three of them went through. Exactly. So um, yeah. well, you know what's beautiful about it again is that they invented this music, right? Um, I do, I do hope they find some joy and um, yeah, joy and satisfaction over the fact that you know in the 1960s, very early on, they're creating a blueprint that's going to change an entire industry in terms of popular music in almost every way, including the self-expression that comes from songwriting and the performance of those songs. Um, we're going to have a secret songwriter period. We're going to have amazing highs in the 70s. We're going to have MTV. We're going to have the music of the 80s and beyond. Uh, the resurgence of rock running in the 90s. So many of these, these moments have their legs, sometimes in a tiny way, and other times in very large fashion in the story of the Beatles. And even though they may not have been as commercially effective in 1995 as solo artists, they still birthed this, and I hope that that they find joy in that, or, or satisfaction. This is an enormous thing that that they they loosed upon the world. And still, and still, it does. It's still happening. Yeah, it's, it's you're still doing it. You can find it in Billie Eilish. You know, you can find it in um, what well, virtually every genre where people write songs and express themselves. Yeah. Now you guys were. In the 80s, like contemporary at the time, we've been now 40 years ago. But growing up then, were they considered old then? Like they're in their 40s then. Yes. They're considered old, right? Yes. But we don't look at it that, that lens now. Well, our understanding of age is not the same. Yeah. Right? 
just isn't. You know, we, we think about growing up and growing older in very different ways now. You know, people expect to have longer careers and longer periods of relevance. I mean, Townsend wasn't joking when he wrote, I hope I die before I get old, right? The idea that he might still be doing something when he was 40 was ridiculous. So, you know, a lot of invention, a lot of invention is happening in that industry in real time in the 1980s. I mean, I laugh when I watch those early 1980s videos of The Who, right? Doing new bedroom beds. Another church yeah. today, yeah. yes, <laughs> which probably didn't need to be committed to video, but you know. Oh, it's still good. Oh, oh yeah. fine. But you, my point is, <laughs> here they are, they're on their second drummer, right? And they're still churning it out. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's almost against everything that we expected. But didn't um, Pete Townsend famously write an essay on when Mick Jagger turned, was it 40 or 50 in Rolling Stone? Four or five. Yeah, and it was, uh, I, I thought it was quite, quite shrewd of Pete. Huh. Because he was, under, he was recognizing how we are seeing, we were in the process of thinking differently about age. I mean, the idea that Paul would be making new albums, right, in this century. Not just one, right, but several. Yeah, it was ridiculous. You know, we don't do that. No. You know, um, so we're still trying to understand how significant it is to folks. My colleague Joe Rapola, who you guys know, who does music industry at the university, thinks a lot and thinks deeply about these issues. And um, he's endlessly fascinated by the fact that, you know, it's such an impactful industry. And we, we all love and adore the songs that are important to us as much as anything or anyone we know. Right? It's very powerful. So, uh, and yet, this industry, you know, is dwarfed by the detergent industry. Or I mean, it probably should be. You should have clean clothes and and smell not rank out of the world, right? Or that it, you know, it's dwarfed by the car industry or this industry, and yet it has such power to it, you know, because it's so important to us. Even though often its progenitors are screwing it up. Yes. I, I don't know, even musicians as much as the money men who run it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty fascinating. Um, and the Beatles heard that too. They were the wars of it too. Yeah. Do you guys have anything you want to talk about? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tony. Tony. Um, I wanted to mention these two final gentlemen novels Double Fantasy and Hook and Honey. Right? I think some of his best stuff is on these albums, um, especially Part of Time I'm Stepping Out. Oh, yeah. For a guy who wrote so many dark, sad songs, those two are the most heartwarming songs I've had. Yeah, I can have one about borrowed time. Um, I wanted to ask you also, when I was 23, I'd go to the library and look at the music section, and they had every McCartney album from the 80s, except Wrong Street. And I became obsessed with following dirt. I'm a huge fan of that one. And I want to ask, um, I, was, I was shocked when I found that wasn't a huge seller at number one top 10. Why do you think that was? Oh, was it the first? Is that Broad Street? You don't mean Flowers the Dirt. No, Flowers in the Dirt. Oh, Flowers in the Dirt. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's interesting to bring that up because uh, you're asking why was Flowers in the Dirt not a big hit. Yeah. Um, because we do tend to call it, 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 some people call it, like, oh, that was his comeback album. But when you, you know, look at the sales figures, it really wasn't a big hit. I mean, you know, it was more. Yeah. UK, UK number one. Yeah, it was a UK number one, but yeah, not here. And it was really the tour that was the big comeback in terms of money. My great face was barely top ten. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really yeah. My great face, you know, we tend to think of it as well. Not top, it's top forty songs. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, it's fascinating to but, yeah, but the, the life of that record, you feel the people's, you feel the people's sound in that record.
you know, not like anything they do. It's, so that can have a lot of impact on the perception as well. I mean, the figures don't lie, but the yeah. impact on the sales can be, it, it can be impacted by what people say about it, you know, and so, you know, there's a lot of factors in that. But yeah. it was critically loved. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, everyone had said, Paul and Elvis Costello, isn't this great? Yeah. Yeah. And then all the press was like, this is the new uh, band on the run, mm -hmm. going right past Tug of War. So. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think part of it in terms of sales may have been just, you know, it, it probably didn't sound, quote, commercial in terms of what was on the radio. I, I think that was just, as you said, my very face, and it did sound beautiful. And you would think that's a good thing, but if you wanted to get on top 40 radio, um, you it know, was it success? It, it, yeah, it not be timing though, I go back to timing again. So Lawrence Fever is exactly right. If they tour in 1980, they're going to see a result for that. Just as um, if we've been fortunate, Mr. Lennon had not been murdered, right? Even though Double's Fantasy was selling slowly. A spring tour on the heels of a controversial Rolling Stone cover photo would have shot that thing to the top of the charts by itself. That industry that exists in 1979, 1980 is not the one that Paul releases Flowers of the Dirt. Right? And that's a different period where uh, touring doesn't necessarily equal the power of returning an album. Charge. It's a different landscape, right? It's a bit remarkable different landscape. Um, now, yeah. And so you have to, when, when you look at these different periods in, in history of recorded music, the context is so very important, right? What do you have to do to get a number one album today? How many units do you have to sell? Not much. Not as many, right? It's, it's a completely different period. Um, that you can't really compare some of these periods one to another. You have to think about the larger forces that exist. And Flowers in the Dirt is released into this very kind of awkward space, right? Um, it, it's highly competitive, and obviously it has a very successful world tour. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it suffers a little bit because of it has a couple different producers on it, and it sounds like it. And I, my respective SRR colleague, who loves the record? I love parts of the record. Yeah, yeah. Uh, parts of it to me sound like the worst successes. Some of them sound like the worst successes of the 1980s. It's a plastic quality of some of the songs, and yet there are others. Distractions are on that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I love that song. I love my records. These are wonderful tunes that are very well crafted. But I love. Yeah, yeah I, I don't want to hear that ever. I don't like. Uh, I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but it can be like that with a lot of records, but as far as creating a cohesive statement, correct. He's not setting himself up well as he did in 1982 after working with George Martin for a couple of years to, to, to put something out like that. Yeah, which is I think that's one that, I mean, it's a great album and this is the, the great tracks are yeah. on Flowers of the Dirt like all time. Not just oh, sure. You know, every artist like you think of has a couple of clunkers on the back of this album. Oh, yeah. So, you know. I think that had been a Costello. Costello album, though, should have no clunkers. Well, yeah. that's true. Well, <laughs> but, but, yeah, but, no, that's right. Careers are littered with Filler. Yeah. 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 It would have been a little, if it had been a true McCartney Costello album co written together with the extra tracks they wrote together, that would be a cohesive. That's a cohesive thing. Yeah, not to put pressure on that. That's the one I want to hear, right? Is if, what would, if he had approached it as, let's make a record together. Yeah. Right? yeah. Not a couple songs. Yeah. Yeah, not a, not a few tracks. I'm not working with multiple producers. Right. You know, I mean, one well, of my favorite records is uh, sort of later than this, but the Baccarat is still. Oh, great. You know, it's uh, that album. Yeah. I love it. And it protects you, painted from memory. I mean, I would like to hear Paul, I would like to have heard Paul put something cohesive forward with Elvis 
Yeah, because it did give him a kind of edge that he still did. He did, he really did it. And, you, he, and he said that as much as he, he felt that creative energy and he had, he, and he had somewhat related to John. It was like the first time he felt on some kind of level like that again, in terms of songwriting, sitting down with somebody. So the 80s was obviously up and down. I, you know, I, I still think it's overall okay. You know, <laughs> That's just me. That was a worthy universe. <laughs> More than okay. I'm not sure it was that good a decade anyway. <laughs> no, but there's, there's really, the highs are high and the lows are really low. I'm the Gen Xer here. I like the 80s. I grew up with 80s music. Um, I, you know, I, I Tug of War was, was a great, uh, you know, Ray album, Cloud Nine, um, you know, and I I liked, um, you know, I will say did Paul work, was Paul some of his other work on even? Yes, I mean press play. However, uh, I liked some of the tracks on press uh, press play. Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, and I I think uh, only love remains. I think that's those are that's one of his best bands. Yeah. Oh, that's I mean, I, I hear it and I, I realize all the problems with it, but I'll play it again anyway. You know. But it's a piece of album. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, there are some problems. Sorry, Ken Michael. Sorry, Ken Michael. Sorry, Ken Michael. Yes, sorry, Ken. Yeah, Ken, I'm sorry. Not everything is great. Yeah. <laughs> but you keep the fire into what we're just talking about. You know, people have a tendency these days to talk about the the harmony sound of wings, you know, the, the blend between Linda and, and Daniel Quartz. But when you're talking about 80s McCartney, at least to my ears, uh, those harmonies on those records are a lot more lush to me. Uh, I hear them more prominently, but that's not Paul, Linda, and Denny anymore. That's Paul, Linda, and Eric Stewart. Which is the Tennessee Seaside. Right. Uh, I mean, Eric Stewart is all over Tug of War. He's all over Pipes of Peace. Those were huge records. He wrote a ton of songs on Press to Play. And yep. yet, it's very rare to hear people talk about Eric Stewart. And I wonder if any of you have an opinion as to why that might be the case. Is it as simple as most people, other than Ken and me, not liking Press to Play very much? Hmm. Well, that's a, good, that's a big collaborator for Paul in the 80s, as you mentioned. You know, he's on all that stuff, and he was really involved with Crystal Play before things kind of went south between those two. But really involved a lot in the Eric Stewart, and that sound is it's all over all of those old records. Uh, I, I enjoy it for what it is. It's like the earlier stuff, obviously, Tug of War, and even sometimes the piece. Yes, I do like that album quite a lot. Yeah, uh, well, in Pipes of Peace, always been so known for me. That's the first Paul album I ever won. Uh, and uh, you know, and I, I was was uh, Eric Stewart was on so bad. Right? Yeah, yeah, so bad. Both versions. Yeah, that's I love the harmonies on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought they, they did some good things together. I, I think Eric thought he was going like the next day, yeah. you know, and then certainly was looking that way. Things went south there. Yeah. Right? Just yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's I'm not going to say anything. I'm just let that sit. George in some deadly bad way because of the whole pepper pastiche thing. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the song and the album. I mean, there's a full album. They're right. Indian and Squid. Most of those songs are great. Yeah. I, mean, I agree. You got Same Love, Indiana. Don't forget Beautiful Light came out of those sessions. Yeah. Oh, Potential hit singles. And, right. and a lot of the basic stuff for Flowers and Dirt came out of those songs. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> the Steve and Ethan came out of the last attempt there record. Thank you. So, so you take it the other way. Uh, first off, Kit forced me to say, I love Old Wave. It's, a, it's not a great album, but it's a good album. So I have to say that. And, and you kind of skip right past it. So, you know, part of the, the, the issue here is the issue of being prolific, right? Right. You know, part of the challenge of being prolific is you're, you know, you want to put it all out there because you're trying to get to the next thing. Um, and obviously Paul is prolific in everything. I mean, during this period, what we had one or two collections of his art are released in book form. Yeah. You know, and so he's working in lots of different veins all the time, probably right now. Um, and so, you know, you, you want that work to be out there, you're not as selective, right? It's like any genre, or genres in this case. Well, again, you know, I think coming back to the, you know, trying to find your place in, in the current, you know, pop landscape, I think George really did nail it with Cloud Nine because, and with Jeff Lynne. After years of toil. Yeah, after years of toil. Yeah, well, yeah. Because I thought it, it really captured, I mean, you had his signature sound, you had the slide guitar, you had the, you know, like with something like when he was back, you know, the humor, um, you had the, you know, in some of the songs, a little bit of, of the spiritual, um, a little bit, I mean, toned down from some of what he did in the 70s, but you had a bit of it there. But it had a modern sound to it, you know. I mean, it really sounded contemporary. Um, and I think he really, was, you know, that record really yeah. nailed it, you know, and, and made him stop. I mean, it wasn't, you know, him trying to rap or do something, you know. Like, I think that's the greatest soul of the 80s. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. Uh, you know, and more Tug Yeah, I mean, Tug Wars, you know. And, and maybe you could say a bit of that with, with Paul, too, that, uh, that it, it, you know, it really captured his sound, but it didn't sound dated. You know, and that—that's a hard balance to strike. Mm -hmm. What else? Cloud Nine, Cloud Nine is my favorite George Young besides the best one. Yeah, I'll say that. And also, I'm curious, what was the reaction like to Men Love Avenue, the John Young Romantics? I was too young. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it felt like it felt like it had no fanfare. No. And actually, I, I, <laughs> I remember buying Press to Play. I'm not Press to Play, I'm um, Pipes of Peace. You know, there was, there was such a buildup for um, the tug of war. And then one day I was at Target, and it was Pipes of Peace. And I really, I almost felt like I didn't have the usual kind of advanced excitement about it. I remember just saying, well, hell, I'm going to buy this. So I bought it, you know, and I, I remember throwing it in the back of my car in my trunk. Which is probably stupid in Texas because I'm lucky it didn't, you know, immediately work. But Orville's right. But um, at some moment, there wasn't the kind of event experience that occurred with the solo records for whatever reason. And that was, to me, just felt like the beginning. I remember going to see, um, give my regards to Broad Street, the film, at the famed Greens Point Mall. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and I think the only people in there were myself, my brother, and Ed. Um, and Ed left early because he couldn't stand it. And my brother, I think, fell asleep. Um, he was just happy because I was allowed to drive, you know, so we drove out there. But you um, started to not have the kind of event moments. And Midlove Avenue didn't feel like an event to me when it came out. Whereas other posthumous Lennon records did yeah. have the appropriate fanfare and, and the reaction and the press and, and among, you know, people who bought records. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, Milk and Honey was definitely had, had the most fanfare. 